Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, and joining me as always, Jonah Goldberg, Steve Hayes, and David French, coming at us from Atchison, Kansas, for some reason. Uh, Today, we are talking about the 11 grants of clemency from the president that were announced yesterday, and a little preview of the Nevada caucuses. The debate is tonight, and Bloomberg is coming to the stage. A little on media bias as well, and where reporters are falling on all of this. That's coming up. Let's dive in. today because the story surrounding the president's grants of clemency yesterday uh, uh, deserves a little more lead in. So I've put these into four categories and I'm going to roughly outline them for you guys, my four categories. Uh, The first is the Angela Stanton category. This is a woman who uh, was part of a car thief ring, um, nonviolent as best I can tell. Her petition was supported by Alveda King. There were several other women like her in yesterday's clemency grants. Uh, To start with, there were 11 clemency grants yesterday. Uh, Let's put those aside for this conversation. Uh, Whether they're deserving or not without diving into a record is maybe hard to say, but I think that's well within any presidential prerogative to say that this person uh, deserves a a full pardon. The second category, uh, Michael Milken, Bernie Carrick, I'm sort of putting them kind of in the same category. Both of their petitions, interestingly, were supported by Rudy Giuliani. Um, And the reason I'm putting them together is because they had already served their time. They had then shown uh, rehabilitation afterwards. They were giving back to their communities. Michael Milken in particular had become actually quite famous for his philanthropic work. Uh, You know, so category two is different than category one, but still probably not that unusual for presidential pardons. Category three, Uh, Paul Pogue is my poster child for this category. I'm not totally sure I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. He is a construction company owner who pled guilty to underpaying his taxes by about half a million dollars. For that, he received three years probation uh, starting just last year, actually. His son and daughter-in-law started donating hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in direct and in-kind contributions to the Trump Victory Fund. Uh, They posted pictures on Instagram with them, with um, Trump's children, uh, and he also was on this list yesterday. Uh, Not unprecedented. I I do want to talk to you guys about Mark Rich and some of the comparisons there. Um, but that's definitely category three for me. And then category four is Blagojevich, which I want to spend the most amount of time on. And just to, to get readers up to, to where we all are. Or listeners. <laughs> yep. Sorry, listeners. My bad. Um, <clears throat> Rob Blagojevich was the governor of Illinois. There, including Blagojevich, four of the previous nine governors had gone to jail uh, when Blagojevich was convicted at that point. He, there were three main categories that he was charged with. One was selling Barack Obama's uh, Senate seat. That's the one that sort of becomes the most famous. This is the quote. 
uh, that you have probably heard before, and I will not use all the words, but I've got this thing, and it's effing golden. It's an effing valuable thing. You don't just give it away for nothing. If I don't get what I want, I'll just take the Senate seat myself. But less known was that he also uh, attempted to get money out of the president of a children's hospital in exchange for a Medicaid rate increase for pediatric specialists, and same with a horse racing executive in exchange for the, quote, timely signing of a bill that benefited the horse racing industry. That quote, by the way, is from his defense attorneys, which is sort of fun and interesting. Um, Okay, so he is uh, found guilty on 17 counts. He receives 14 years from the judge. This goes up and down the appellate track. The Supreme Court Uh, rejects his appeal. The Trump administration's Department of Justice um, objected to his appeal and asked the Supreme Court not to take it, saying even if there is some lack of clarity in the law after Bob McDonald's case out of Virginia, this ain't the case to resolve it in because it's so clear cut what was going on. Uh, He had served eight of his years uh, and received a commutation, not a pardon, from the president yesterday. Interesting article from Politico, from a reporter who had previously worked at the Sun-Times, who had covered the trial in grainy detail, saying that she was less surprised, that many people thought that uh, 14 years was too long. You know, for those who want to sort of read the other side of, of how that trial might have gone or seemed unfair to some people, I thought that was an interesting read. So, laying all that groundwork, and thank you all for bearing with me, uh, David, I wanted to start with you from the legal side, going to category three. This is my Paul Pogue donor category. The, you know, let's, in the least charitable way, buying the pardon. Right. Uh, Unprecedented, Mark Rich. Talk a little bit about how you think this fits into the history of presidential pardons. So I I did a little bit of brushing up on the Mark Rich pardon scandal. uh, And... There's this consistent pattern when you go and you look back at the Clinton years, and that pattern is it was so much worse than you even remembered. So (laughs) if you're going to compare, say, the Mark Rich pardon to this one, it's like comparing, I don't know, the Michael Jordan of corrupt pardons with, um, you know, a a random starter on an NBA team. You know, so that— there's, wow. Okay. So Mark Rich, let, let's just let's just not even like a James Harden. Like you're no, straight, we're not even like, talking. Jim, okay. This might be the Clint Capella of pardons. So <laughs> okay, the Michael Jordan part of pardons versus the Clint Capella of pardons, and and so Mark Rich, if you guys remember these facts, he was indicted on sixty five counts that would have collectively led to a sentence if he'd been convicted on all of them of more than 300 years. It was the biggest tax evasion case at that time in U.S. history. And one aspect of the charges against him was that he had traded with the enemy, with Iran, during the Iran hostage crisis. Uh, He never went to court. He fled to Switzerland, was never held accountable for his crimes in any way, shape, or form. And then his, and then Denise Rich, uh, his uh, his ex-wife, gave $450,000 to the Clinton Library Foundation during Clinton's time in office, gave $100,000 to the to Hillary, Hillary Senate uh, campaign, all told gave about a million dollars, and then he's pardoned. Uh, this is, 
this is probably the worst, or I think this is the worst presidential pardon, certainly of my adult lifetime. Um, so, if this is, if that's the if that's the worst, I think what what Trump did was similar in kind with this with the Pogue uh, pardon, but not similar in magnitude. They're both offensive for similar reasons, but one of them was far graver in, in its magnitude than the other. Well, but, let me follow up with this, though. Do you think that but for Mark Rich, Trump wouldn't have pardoned someone like no. Pogue? Or do you think that Mark Rich is no. irrelevant? It's just an interesting anecdote from the past. Yeah, I think it's an interesting anecdote from the past. And it's, you know, it's a, and it's a useful anecdote for Democrats who would react and say, oh, my goodness, you know, our party would never, you know, our presidents would never. And you can wave the Mark Rich flag in front of their faces. But um, the bottom line is Trump, Trump's going to do what Trump's going to do. It's not like he's sitting around studying historical precedents of the, of the presidency and following them. I mean, this is this was something that, you know, I think that he's fascinated with the pardon power because it's one of the few constitutional powers that's his. He can do it. He doesn't have any oversight. He doesn't have any accountability. There's nobody can overrule this. This is this awesome power that he has. I think he's fascinated by the pardon power. I think that he uh, uh, loves flattery. And I think he dispenses pardons in response to money and flattery uh, on occasion. And I think it's just basically that simple. So, Jonah, uh, there's something that these categories tend to have in common, and that's a, a to follow exactly on what David just said, there's a media component to it, a flattery component to it. So shortly after his Supreme Court appeal was rejected, Rob Lagojevich's wife was on Fox News on several shows, actually, but one of the quotes that stood out to me was, I thought he was treated, um, sorry, uh, I see that the same people that did this to my family, the same people that secretly taped us and twisted the facts and perverted the law that ended up my husband in jail, these same people are trying to do the same thing they did to my husband, just on a much greater scale, meaning they're trying to do this to President Trump. And President Trump, uh, a few months later, when he said he was thinking very seriously about commuting the remainder of the Senate, said, I thought he, Rod Blagojevich, I thought Blagojevich was treated unbelievably unfairly. He was given close to 18 years in prison, and a lot of people thought it was unfair, like a lot of other things. And it was the same gang, the Comey gang and all these sleaze bags that did it. Which sounds pretty, like, one-to-one. Uh, <laughs> is this a playbook at this point? <laughs> all right, so uh, for much of the opening monologue and and conversation with David, I wanted to do a whole bless your heart, you know, look at you naive, sweet, delicate flowers treating this like this is a serious issue of public policy and the president weighed these individual cases in some serious way. Um, I think none of that happened. Um, I think this the, the, the stuff from Blago's wife is more dispositive. Um, Trump is obsessed with creating a narrative that uh, makes it seem like he's been witch hunt, right? Unfairly persecuted by these bad people. And I think David's point about all of the, about him being susceptible to flattery and he loves the pardon power is all true. I, just the, the two factors that I think haven't been mentioned 
is one, and I don't know that this was Trump's intent, but it's kind of like betting that the sun will rise. Trump has this unbelievable gift of making his most ardent defenders look like ass clowns. And so we just got through <laughs> impeachment, right? We just got through. And everybody. An impeachment about quid pro quo corruption. Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean. And, and all of these people, Lindsey Graham and, you know, and, and Jim Jordan, and not to mention everybody who goes on TV to defend him, they all said with unbelievably, shockingly straight faces, the kinds of straight faces that you think would invite a divine lightning bolt, um, saying uh, this was all because of the president's passionate commitment to fight corruption. That this is, he's a corruption fighter. And he is, I mean, you actually had, what's his name, that guy, Jarrett, um, saying, and I think actually uh, 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 Dershowitz at some point said it too, became this other talking point that literally Trump would be impeachable if he didn't pursue corruption like this, right? Because, And it doesn't matter because he's so committed to fighting corruption wherever he sees it. And then once all of these people buy in to this incandescently untrue explanation, he goes and gives out pardons like it's like tetracycline at the clinic. And um, including to Blago, who is... is Fairly or not, is the poster boy of corruption in the United States politics today. Makes, fairly. Yeah, right. Fairly, yes, he makes fairly. all of these people look like fools. And he does this almost every single time people invest on a narrative line because he wants to make it clear that the only way to support Trump is to support Trump, not an argument about what Trump is doing, not an ideological thing. The only other thing that hasn't come up is I think this is all preparatory to giving Stone and Manafort yeah. pardons. Yeah. And he's done this before, where he sprinkles absolutely defensible pardons with absolutely indefensible pardons. And he says, how can you say I'm doing this for political reasons? Look at you know this, this, this person I've pardoned who deserves it. And it, it muddies the water, and it sends the signal. And so I think this is all laying the groundwork for that. This is softening the battlefield, as it were, for him to give out pardons to these guys. And um, and this is not to say that David and you are wrong about how much he likes the pardon powder and all the rest. I will say oh, one last point. I remember the Mark Rich stuff vividly. I was, like, fighting about that. You know, my anti-Clinton credentials, I will take a backseat to nobody on. <laughs> and I was talking to my wife about it this morning, and one of the things I remember most vividly was how – I mean, the Mark Rich thing happened almost like literally as Clinton was heading out the door. He was, uh, um, you know, the election was over uh, for most of that scandal. And and a lot of people thought that was going to be a career-ending thing for Eric Holder at the time. And I remember that E.J. Dion and all the MSNBC crowd and all the Washington Post op-ed people, that this was the issue that they blew their top about with Clinton. For eight years, they defended almost everything he did as either – overreaction from the right or totally unfair from the right and then it was this and they and I remember E.J. Dionne wrote a column about it and I think I got into an argument with him about it he says you know conservatives are saying uh, you know that liberals um, are making a big deal out of this um, because it's just a way to prove that they weren't reflexively pro-Clinton all along that's not true we really believe that this, this thing is different but as David notes 
it wasn't different. It was so consistent with the Clinton administration, which was unbelievably corrupt from the firing of the travel office in the first months of the administration all the way through. And But this was this thing that all the gitchy-goo liberals who defended Clinton on everything, including his adultery, could say, oh, of course I'm impartial. Of course I'm objective. I call him like I see him. Look, I criticize this Mark Rich thing. <laughs> I just, you know, it just wasn't until this that Clinton really did anything that was worthy of criticism. So, Steve, I know a little bit about how you feel about this. I want to read you uh, a quote that Blagojevich gave to a local outlet before boarding his plane last night. I've made a whole bunch of mistakes, but I didn't break any laws. I crossed no lines. And the thing I talked about doing, the things I talked about doing, were legal. This was routine politics. And the ones who did it are the ones who broke the laws and the ones who, frankly, should meet and face some accountability. Uh, shortly after, when they asked him whether he was a Republican or Democrat, he said, I'm a Trumpocrat now. <laughs> so z- zero remorse. I, I think um, that counts as zero remorse. recognition of the reality of his crimes. Um, and I think strong evidence as to why he never should have had uh, his sentence commuted. <clears throat> Let, let me start by just cleaning up a couple of things. The, the president said that this is what the Comey gang did. Comey was not in, in office. He was out of government. No, he was time. out of government. He had left uh, in the deputy attorney general role in 2005. He came back two years after Blagojevich's conviction in 2013. The line that you can draw, such as it is, is that Pat Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald. the U.S. attorney, had worked with Comey in SDNY in 2000. To 2003. Again, this conviction was in 2011. Yeah, so it's misleading for the president to suggest that this was somehow uh, the result of, of James Comey. And of course, Pat Fitzgerald famously went after Scooter Libby and, and others in the Bush administration. So it's the, the president's suggestion that this is somehow political and this is somehow James Comey is silly. The president also said, I don't know him, of Bl- Blagojevich, when there have there, there's tape of the president speaking warmly of Blagojevich, who had appeared on the celebrity apprentice uh, in between his uh, his indictment and, and going his, yeah, to, yeah. to jail. Um, so some basic fact checking there. I, I think um, Jonah and David make, both make very good points. In the 24 hours plus since this has happened, I think you've seen two different conversations take place. I think it was very useful for you to walk through these this wave of of uh, commutations or pardons uh, the way that you did because some are legitimate some are I think clearly not there has been a reaction on the left the president's critics and including some of the media who have reacted not by pointing specifically to the Blagojevich um, commutation but have reacted more broadly to the presidential pardon power and claiming somehow that this is further evidence that Donald Trump is eroding the rule of law. Now, yeah, I, I mean, think there's I a lot you, of evidence. Yeah, I, please. Can I read our audience? So Eric Lipton of The New York Times, a, a well-regarded investigative reporter, knows the law. This is not he didn't fall off a turnip truck in 2014, tweeted big day for executive actions from DOJ just now. President Obama grants commutations and pardons clemency to 28 commutations, 12 pardons. That's 2014. Yesterday, a moment that live in history and deserves to be remembered. President Trump is now both the executive and judicial branch. <laughs> Rob Blagojevich, Michael Milken, Bernie Carrick, and others. Uh, that goes to the pardon power, which has, 
absolutely is not usurping the judicial power. It's at in all. the Constitution. No, at all. And and there's there's a clear double standard, not just from Eric Lipton, but from others whose analyses I read over the past 24 hours of that. Their, their objection is to the, the presidential pardon power because a Republican is using it. They loved it when President Obama did. They don't like it now. Uh, so, so I think that's sort of a, a, a level setting um, effort on our part. The, the the broader point, I think, the, the, the point where I think Trump defenders, Trump supporters are struggling is they are not making the distinctions that you made between good pardons and bad pardons. Their argument is, in effect, because the president actually has pardon power, all pardons are somehow justifiable. And you've seen this in the president's defenders, you know, some of whom literally uh, were condemning Rod Blagojevich for public corruption several years ago and are now celebrating um, his, uh, his departure from prison. I think, the, to me, Blagojevich's original sentence is too, too little. I think we should make examples of officials who engage in this kind of public corruption. And let's emphasize that this is indisputable. A lot of it was on tape what he tried to do, not just with selling the Senate seat, but with these, these other extortion attempts. My, I think we should be doubling and tripling these sentences precisely because it's important to set an example and precisely because of the potential deterrent effect for others. What I think the president has done with Blagojevich in particular is sort of vindicate the sense that people have, and I think this isn't accidental, that everybody does it. Everybody does it. And this goes to Jonah's point about about Manafort and Stone. So when the president uh, pardons Manafort and Stone, he can point back to Blagojevich and say, look, I did this. He was unfairly singled out. This is somebody who shouldn't have gotten the sentence that, he, that he'd gotten. He served his time. Um, therefore, when I do it to my own people, it's somehow rationalized. Uh, or when I Mike Pence does it for him. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid. I want to underline that because I think uh, undermining institutions is nothing new. I think many administrations have tried to undermine institutions that are counter to their interests. But when Blagojevich says this was routine politics and nobody is, you know, screaming and raising their hands to push back, I absolutely think it feeds into this everyone does it idea that uh, that is incredibly damaging to all the institutions. Yes, totally agree. Look, I'm, I'm as skeptical of, of government generally as pretty much anybody alive. But it's simply not the case that everybody does the things that Blagojevich, Blagojevich was caught on tape doing. It's not the case that everybody does what Paul Manafort did. It's not the case that everybody does what Roger Stone has done. These are exceptions. They deserve to be treated exceptions as exceptions, and I think as examples, because it's it, it does erode trust in the, the broad the broad sort of minimal trust in government that we all have to have in order to make this thing work. Jonah, the Illinois delegation: uh, Darren LaHood, Adam Kinzinger, John Shimkus, Rodney Davis, Mike Bost. The Republican congressional delegation actually did come out with a statement. Blagojevich is the face of public corruption in Illinois. Not once has he shown any remorse for his clear and documented record of egregious crimes that undermined the trust placed in him by voters. They put out their statement. The end. But there's not a whole lot else we're hearing from Repub- elected Republicans at this point. 
Um, does this feel like another case of I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue? <laughs> a little bit. And I understand why the Illinois politicians felt the need to do this because what is in that statement is true, right? <laughs> I mean, he is the face of public corruption. He's a joke. You go to Chicago and you talk about Blagojevich. It's like a, always an applause line to make jokes about how corrupt he was. And, you know, and, and it just as a mo- point of fact, you're right about the ratio. Um, four out of nine. Four out of nine. But it was it used to be four out of eight. And so they're due. Right. I mean, they've been there. They are there. The regression to the mean of one out of two should be happening any time now. Um, uh, yeah. Look, I mean, I, I think that this is it, it, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, and I know that liberals hate comparisons of Trump to Obama. But um, one of the things that tr- that Obama tried to do, Obama was very bad about helping the Democratic Party. Remember, he took his campaign operation which was what organizing for action or organizing for, for America, America. Yeah. and turn it into organizing for action yeah. right and it became he tried to create a parallel party structure that was loyal only to him outside of the DNC structure. outside of the DNC and i don't think it was particularly successful but there were DNC people who were pretty pissed off about it because it was taking resources and 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 energy away from the party in over eight years, they lost about 1,000 seats right. at the state level. But I would just say it was successful for Obama. Yes, it was. It wasn't successful for Democrats. I mean, think about their data uh, program that they had going in 2012 that just put everything to yeah. shame. Everyone forgets. My point isn't how about how it was. worked well for his reelection. I'm talking about <laughs> after he was elected, he did not say, okay, now let's help the party. He was still like, let's help me. And um, Trump is doing that on a psychological level in an interesting way, much less as an organizational level. Um, but he's, you know, the Blagojevich line where he says, I'm a Trump publican or Trump Trumpocrat. Trumpocrat. That's really what Trump is interested in. And I, and I, was, I wasn't just ki- I wasn't su- just kidding when I talked about how he, there's a method to the madness of turning his defenders into fools. Um, if If you can't stay true to an ideological or an intellectual consistent message or program and you demand absolute loyalty from people, the only safe harbor is the cult of personality argument. The only safe harbor where you're not going to be called inconsistent or hypocritical is just to simply say, I believe in President Trump. I believe in his judgment and his instincts. And I think there's something in his lizard brain that says, I don't like it when people go out there and they defend what I'm doing by defending an idea. He likes it when they go out there and just defend him. And so he will saw off the plank of the idea and see whether or not people jump back and defend the man rather than some coherent program. And he does that. He's doing this with the pardons and the corruption stuff, but he's done this on foreign policy stuff. He... He wants the answer to the question to always be because I believe in Trump, not because I believe in America first, not because I believe in nationalism, not because I believe in the Republican Party. It has to be in Trump. We trust in everything. And he veers that way all the time. So, David, uh, I wasn't necessarily planning on going this direction, but I think Jonas teed it up so nicely. Last night, the Washington Post broke a story that Bill Barr was considering resigning if the president wouldn't stop tweeting about Department of Justice and Department of Justice cases. Uh, it, <laughs> if that were to happen, it goes a little against Jonah's point. 
Um, that would be an example of someone saying like, no, this is ideological for me and it, I'm not just going to go along to get along. The Department of Justice spokesperson put out a statement saying um, he has not threatened to resign, which is different than not what a full the, denial. Not, right. <laughs> not right. what the Washington Post actually reported, but, um, you know, been there. So I take her point. Uh, <laughs> I put out a lot of has not resigned yet statements uh, <laughs> myself. How do you square this with Jonah's point? Well, uh, first with Barr. I mean, I'll believe it when I see it, but at the same time, this would not be unprecedented in his administration. I mean, we had the Mattis resignation. Uh, we had the longstanding tension with General Kelly. We've had, there have been instances in his administration where at least a few people have said enough. But what's interesting about that is Mattis doesn't face Republican primary voters. Uh, Barr isn't facing Republican primary voters. I think there's a, a different... Their end of career. Right. There, there's a different calculus here. And, and I think that the... If I'm putting on the hat of, I am a, a Republican lawmaker, Trump has so successfully built up a, a cult following amongst core Republican-based voters in jurisdiction after jurisdiction. I mean, this is something people are talking about the box Susan Collins is in in Maine is that uh, tr- hardcore Trump supporters could block, uh, could could end her career in theory, even though Maine is much more of a moderate-leaning Republican electorate in many ways. And so I think what you have is amongst the elected officials, there is this sort of feeling of dread that is sunk in with an awful lot of people that says, if I'm going to break with Trump, I need to consider and understand the fact that I'm ending my career and that my, all of the plans that I have made for all of the good that I want to do in my career as a lawmaker, which I hope extends far beyond the Trump administration, will end and I will be replaced if there is a Republican replacement by somebody who's worse than me. And. And I think that there is that dynamic is settled in because there is such a dedication to Trump in the base. And, and one of the things that's fascinating to me uh, that really cuts against this thesis that, I, that I've heard from a lot of people that I really genuinely respect, that there's this sort of huge reluctant Trump world out there, is if the reluctant Trump world is so big, especially in the Republican primary electorate, why in state after state after state when you have a republican running for an office they are putting front and center before they put life before they put liberty before they put national security they are putting trump even if they don't intend to govern in a trumpy way i mean uh governor of florida what was his ad he had his kid building trump's wall out of blocks in the primary and then he becomes governor and he is not governing uh, as a Trumpist, you had a primary ad for Senate in uh, Alabama just recently, ragging on Jeff Sessions. Why? Because Trump didn't like him. Ragging on Tommy Tuberville because he was fired from being a football coach. And and what was the first thing that the uh, that the Alabama candidate said? I vote with Trump 97% of the time. That was the first thing out of his mouth before everything else. And when I talk to my progressive friends and they say, why don't these guys stand up? And I said, "That here's the reality. Here's the reality is these people believe that they have a role to play in Washington. They're going to have a role to play in Washington after Trump is gone. And if they break with him, it's over for them and somebody worse will replace them. 
That's the mental calculus, so, and I like the way Jonah says it. It's a, it's a reason. It's not a justification. So there's a difference between a reason and a justification. But there's the reason, and I think that reason is very real. Yeah, or uh, the way I put it is there's a difference between an explanation and an excuse, right? I can describe the behavior without excusing it. I love that you guys keep teeing up my next question because, Steve, I was thinking about this, and you and I have some of these conversations. We talk to Republican elected officials, uh, certainly in the last several months, many times, and what um, what I hear is they do stand up to Trump from time to time on on specific issues, and each time they they a have to pick their fights for sure, but b um, they become increasingly isolated. They they end up on an island, and I guess what for me is interesting is that so much of what this president has done, maybe similar to Obama, to Jonah's point has been through executive action. There's not a whole lot of legislative stuff that will survive past his presidency. So it's a lot of long-term pain, I would argue, for what amounts to actually not much even short-term gain, big asterisk aside from judges. So the short-term gain, that was a perfect way of framing that. The short-term gain for, I think, many of these uh, individual politicians is not ideological. So you're pointing to judges. That's your argument. That's not the short-term game for them. The short-term game for them is being in Congress, yep. sticking around. And, and I, I will say one of the things that, that uh, I've learned in, in the past five years is the extent – I mean, of course, we all understand that elected officials hold very prominently in the, on their priority list – sticking around, being reelected. The system uh, is set up that way in fairness of, to them, especially on the House side. You're yeah. up every two years. Yep. That's no yep. time at all. No, completely. And and we know, I mean, the time that they spend fundraising and all these things, it's it's a huge priority probably for many of them. It's, it's the top priority. I guess I hadn't appreciated um, how many of them held it as the single priority. And that, to me, is has been interesting. I mean, it's there's there's an inside out phenomenon taking place. But when you talk to them, do they actually acknowledge that it's the single priority? I mean, they would never, I think, say it that way. But you, you can't help but be struck by how different the things are that they say to you than they're saying at a press conference mm-hmm. or than yeah, they're yes. saying to their constituents in speeches. I mean, it is. I think people. It's it's hard to communicate this. Um, but I think people underappreciate the extent to which somebody will say something in private, provide an analysis and an assessment of Trump in private to other members of Congress, say, um, one night and then literally the next day go out and give a press conference and make exactly the opposite, not just point, but argument, like full argument against what they had said they believe in private. And that is that is happening a lot. I think David's point about um, the extent to which elected officials understand that because of the base enthusiasm for Trump, they have to run as sort of super Trumpers, that can't be overstated. I mean, there was this primary in Wisconsin that we've covered uh, a little bit here at the Dispatch. Andrew Reger has written a, a couple things about it, about a, uh, that race for us. And there were two candidates. One was sort of a traditional Scott Walker, limited government conservative. And the other was a uh, respected military veteran, double amputee, um, incredible personal courage, personal story. 
and I've been following this race closely because I, I'm from Wisconsin. I love cheese. It's an interesting <laughs> race. <laughs> I love badgers. I love cheese. What's not to be good for? But y- you followed them on Twitter or you went and looked at their public statements or watched their videos on their on their website. And it, w- it got to the point where it was hilarious. I mean, these guys, every single tweet, not every single, but 95% of their tweets or their videos they put out or something, talked about Donald Trump. You know, please elect me so I can go and support Donald Trump in Washington. And and sometimes borderline absurd. You know, just like Donald Trump, I woke up this morning and <laughs> you're just like, what? I, too, am a carbon-based <laughs> light <boy laughs> right. with bipedal locomotion. Uh, I want to go back to one point that Steve made, which I think is um, is really important. Steve and I have talked about this a bunch, is the this thing about how much politicians want to get elected, right? Which I think we all took for granted. We all thought that was true, right? We all talked about how politicians want to get reelected. I don't think what's changed is the desire to get reelected. What is really fascinating is, to me at least, because I'm sort of obsessed with party structure these days, is that all you have to do is, it's a perfect example of how if you change institutional incentives, you uh, have a change in results, right? So forever, people, you know, I was at National Review for 21 years. We always complained about squishy Republicans, rhino, all that kind of stuff, you know, and but it turned out that in the pre-polarized landscape, you had to placate the base in the primaries, and then to actually get reelected, you had to win over a certain amount of the center. The right? pivot. Yeah, it was always the pivot, and everyone. Obama was the first presidential candidate to successfully not pivot, and I think that was underappreciated. That it wasn't just about him; it said something important about the political landscape. But so what's changed isn't that politicians want to get to re- reelected. They've always wanted to get reelected. And when so when Bill Rusher used to tell young National Review staffers, uh, look, politicians will always disappoint you. The background of that was the pivot was this idea that, you know, they're always going to sort of sell you out a little bit to get reelected. What's changed now is that because of polarization and red state, blue state stuff and all in the self sort is that the motivation to get reelected now causes you to behave in a way that doesn't get you primaried. Right. Because the only way you're going to lose your seat in a lot of these places is if you have a primary challenger who is more to, it used to be prior to Trump, more to your right, right? That was the worry that the Tea Party people and the Heritage Action people will come for you if you go squishy. Now it's if you're insufficiently Trumpy, right? If yep. you don't fully love his musk, then uh, <laughs> you're going to get primaried. And, uh, but it's the same dynamic. It's just that the slight change in the institutional incentive structure from needing to tack to the center to win re-election to needing to hug the base produces almost all of this stuff. Well, and this is what I've found so interesting. Uh, and when I talk to my students, I describe it as like we're moving to base elections instead of win over right. the independence elections. But to our conversation last week, it's a bit misleading because actually what I think has happened is that the parties themselves are realigning. And so it's not that there aren't these undecided middle voters. It's that describing them as middle voters is no longer accurate because the parties are shifting around them. Right. And so they don't just fall literally in between the ideologies of the two parties. 
they fall on the scattergram. And so the way that you um, hungry, hungry hippo, you'll know that's my favorite analogy, like clomp up some of these voters is just different to Jonah's point. Um, and it's going to be far more personality based as Obama's election was, as Trump's election was. And speaking of elections. So tonight is the Nevada debate. You will note the pronunciation, David. And <laughs> uh, Bloomberg is going to be on stage for the first time. How will we tell if the podium's normal height? Oh, oh, sorry. oh no. Oh, so no. rude. So I want to read y'all uh, the 538 averages in the national polling. Um, has Sanders at 25%. Biden at 16.7, Bloomberg at 16.1, Warren at 11.7, Buttigieg at 10.5, Klobuchar at 5.6. The point being, Sanders way out ahead in that. If you look at their, um, they're running some great models uh, on on these things. And one, uh, you know, in 80% of simulations, Sanders is, you know, basically ahead in every state. And we're not in the media talking about how this is a one-person race, really. Everyone is still very in this 2016 mindset, like, well, this could happen and this could happen. But at this point, it is narrowing down. Now, last night, Sanders said that he was not going to release additional medical records. That's causing some heartburn even among uh, the Democratic uh, Twitterati. Uh, he's 78. He suffered a heart attack in October. That being said, he has released two letters from cardiologists and another uh, doctor, the congressional doctor, I believe. So I think it's three letters in total. But says he will not be releasing, quote, full medical records. Um, when asked, he said, I don't think we will know. On the flip side, we have Bloomberg, who has yet to be on a debate stage, has yet to really answer a lot of the questions about his record. There's been these oppo dumps that we've talked about. But the one that I think is sticking the most and is most salient are the sexual harassment uh, allegations. You know, CNN had a very long, detailed history of some of these. I'm just going to point to one very small part of the complaint that for some reason I found... <laughs> telling. So this is 1993-95 uh, time frame. This idea, by the way, that somehow sexual harassment was just so rampant and accepted in the mid-90s, I don't think is quite right. But um, according to her complaint, Bloomberg so frequently said the words, quote, I'd F that in a second in reference to women in the office that it was shortened to, quote, in a second. Bloomberg also uttered comments like, quote, that's a great piece of but uh, in the presence of colleagues, <laughs> she said, I mean, it just goes, I mean, the, like, that's not the most egregious. It's just th the most telling because he said it so much he had to shorten the harassment to say it quicker. Uh, so, David, I'll, I'll start with you. The debate tonight. What's a win? What you looking for? How's this going? Well... So I'll, I'll answer the how's it going first. Uh, I think there's two thing, there are two things happening at once here that I do agree that there is a, a little bit of an underestimation of the extent to which Bernie is, is sort of thoroughly and comprehensively now a front runner. Uh, in part because he's not actually polling in absolute numbers very highly. Uh, and his 
New Hampshire 2020 performance was very anemic compared to his New Hampshire 2016 performance where he gathered in not just the Bernie folks, but also the anti-Hillary folks. Uh, but, but one thing that I think is being underestimated in all of these comparisons between the Democrats of 2020 and the Republicans of 2016 is that unlike Donald Trump, who was able to take winner-take-all primaries with 30-35% of the vote and amass this giant delegate lead, uh, Bernie, if he keeps bumping around and winning polaralities between 25 and 35% of the vote under Democratic delegate allocation rules, is going to have between 25 and 35% of the delegates. He's not going to have the winner-take-all scenario. And that could lead to a situation where Bernie rolls into a primary with 30, 35% of the total delegates, a plurality of the vote, and a huge amount of concern that he's not the best guy to take on Donald Trump, and an equally huge amount of concern that if you deny him the nomination with his plurality, that his guys will, his folks will stay home. So I, I think there is a difference with 2016 in the delegate allocation rules that's really important in the comparison between Republicans and Democrats, and just sort of leave that there. As far as the debate goes, I'm looking for two things. One was Amy Klobuchar's very strong performance in the debate immediately preceding the New Hampshire primary. Was that an aberration? Can she continue it to build some momentum? I'll be very intrigued to see that. And the other one is, you know, this is about as... um, conventional wisdom, banal punditry as you can possibly imagine, but hey, I want to see Mike Bloomberg on the stage, and I want to see him answer these questions, and I want to see him answer these questions about harassment. Um, that I've read the same report, Sarah, and wow, wow. Uh, and part of you says, well, if he's running against anybody but Donald Trump, who has his own like series of wows from years past, that you know, I can easily see Democrats saying, well, our bully billionaire isn't as bad as their bully billionaire. Uh, but still, there's a huge segment of the Democratic electorate that is not interested in a bully billionaire, period. Uh, so this is... And could be very demoralizing. Very demoralizing. They, the, the gender gap on their side is uh, toward women. And so to to suppress that turnout would be... a a bad move if you're just a political scientist looking at these numbers. And I could see I could see some of the Bernie bros developing a never Mike movement. It's hard for me to see the Democrats developing a never Bernie, largely or of any in any way, shape, or form. But the core core Bernie voter, if there was a single human being with a D label by their name, who's most calculated to alienate them completely, it seems to be Mike Stop and Frisk Bloomberg. And that's definitely the the setup for tonight's debate is Bernie the revolutionary versus Bloomberg the plutocrat buying the election that that uh, all of the candidates are at this point setting up. Steve, I want to talk a little bit about the media coverage up to this point. Sam Donaldson, renowned Sam Donaldson, endorsed Mike Bloomberg. There's been a lot of hand-wringing over whether journalists, even when they're retired, even afterwards, should endorse candidates and whether that undermines the idea that Sam Donaldson this whole time was actually in the tank for various candidates and just didn't say it publicly. Mm. And it comes at a time where journalism is suffering from a credibility gap with a lot of uh, consumers. What do you make of the endorsement, right, wrong, indifferent? 
I mean, did anybody who followed Sam Donaldson's career closely think that he was not sympathetic <laughs> to liberals? I mean, Mike Bloomberg is sort of a, a, a I mean, he governed as a centrist, uh, one, right, time, one time Republican, yeah. one time, one time now, now Democrat, although I would I would just point out for accuracy's sake, he is running as a leftist today. He is not running as a centrist. People should. I think come to come to grips with that. People continue to describe him as a centrist. Look on the broader question. You know, my my view of all of this stuff is that journalists are better off being as open as they possibly can about where they come down on this stuff. Um, so you know, in 2016, I wrote a piece about. I don't like to write about myself a lot, but I wrote a piece about how I was approaching this, what I was going to do with my vote. People can make their decisions about how to evaluate the information I provide them on that basis if they think that's a really important thing. The the the, the obvious um, conclusion, we didn't need this 2016 or 2020 presidential race to, to come to it, is that the media skew heavily, overwhelmingly, to the left, I think that was certainly true over over the course of um, the past several decades. It's as true now as it's ever been, and I think it would be a mistake to overlook how important that was to the rise of Donald Trump. You remember, you go back and look at the Republican primaries in, in 2012, Newt Gingrich ran as much against the media as he ran against other Republicans, and he did well when he did that. It was only when Mitt, Mitt Romney came in and, and thumped him later that he stemmed that Gingrich rise. And he it was predictable. We'd watch the debates. And in every single debate, Gingrich would turn at some point and take on a moderator and people would love it. And he saw his polls increase again and again and again. I think there is, a, a, again, to a much greater extent than I appreciated, this deep skepticism among conservatives of uh, the mainstream media. And I say that, I think I've mentioned this before, I say that as somebody who gave my first forensics club speech in high school about media bias in 1988. So I've believed this for a long time, but I think it's much uh, a much bigger factor in shaping how Republicans think than I appreciated yeah, before. Two quick responses to that, if I may. Um, one... I'm not sure it's worse than it's ever been, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, but two... Institutional trust. Oh, that's worse than it's ever been. I don't mean that the actual, uh, you know, thing being asserted is worse. Yeah, I, my point is, is I, I, I'm not sure that the media is more liberal today than it was, say, 15 years ago. Um, I'll get to that in a second. But, like, when the Obama administration... Obama administration hired an enormous yep. number of former journalists... Mm -hmm. And I always loved how all of these journalists, it was Jay Carney and, you know, or it was the woman who covered health care for the Washington Post, but Linda Douglas, you can go through this huge list of them. If you had said to them six months before they got the job, well, of course, you're a liberal, so you would say, how dare you, sir? <laughs> I'm an objective journalist. My politics don't enter into this. And then it just turns out that they almost all take jobs in democratic administrations and it turns out lo and behold they are pretty serviceable democratic hacks and i don't mean that the hack in a negative connotation necessarily the best possible kind of hack yeah <laughs> they're party people and yeah. they take to being party people really easily i had a friend 
who dated a prominent Democratic activist who had worked in the Clinton administration. And my friend was a major conservative uh, journalist. And he said, you know, even though he lived in journalist, been working as a conservative for as a conservative journalist for over you know 20 years, it wasn't until he dated a Democratic activist that he met reporters from the New York Times and the Washington Post because they all date each other and they're in the same social circles. They're in the same social milieu. They take the same cues from each other. Um, you can go, you know, Tim Russert, you can go down uh, down a long list of people who were Democratic staffers and then moved seamlessly into mainstream journalism. George Stephanopoulos, Tim Russert, enormously long list. And then there's a handful of people on the right who have done it. And I'm not, I don't condemn that. I mean, you've gone in and out of this world quite a bit, uh, Sarah. But so I, I think this idea that mainstream journalism wasn't liberal you know, and wasn't obviously liberal for a very long time is kind of ridiculous and has always been ridiculous. But I'm not sure it's worse than it's ever been. I mean, a lot of your colleagues from the Weekly Standard got picked up at mainstream outlets. That wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. For decades, National Review used to complain about how the New Republic and Mother Jones and Washington Monthly were these farm teams for the New York Times and Time Magazine and Newsweek. And you never, you would never dream of hiring someone from National Review. And I remember uh, pa, John Podoritz, my friend John Podoritz, wrote, you know, when he interviewed at Newsweek, they kept asking him whether he could keep his ideology in check. And he was like, have you ever asked someone from the New Republic that question? And they're like, well, no, it never occurred to us, right? And, um, and at National Review, for a while, we had a pretty great Washington office run by Eliana Johnson and before that by Bob Costa. And those people could go into mainstream journalism in a way that when mainstream journalism was much more powerful and much bigger and commanded American politics with much more authority, they couldn't. So I, I, I think the part of the problem that we have with mainstream journalism today isn't that it's liberal, it's that it's so fractured that the smaller institutions are trying to do fan service for a much smaller slice of the pie because they just need sticky eyeballs and sticky listeners rather than Back in the old days, where like CBS, which had forty percent of the market, could tell people what they thought they needed to hear. David, yeah, I think I, I'm I'm glad Jonah brought up uh, uh, Eliana and Bob Costa at the end, and I and and I do think there's an interesting Jonathan parallel Martin. here between media bias and campus free speech. And so, hang with me for a minute. I'm going to actually link these two things. Both of these things have been a problem for a really long time. A really long time. Um, I, I remember when mainstream journalists used to deny that there was some sort of mainstream media bias, which is something that they're less likely to do now. I remember back in the days when academics would deny that there is a, an overwhelming progressive bias in the academy, just which sounds insane. And what I think is interesting is in these really cultural hot button areas, media bias like campus uh, progressivism and, and free speech. In both circumstances, the problem has eased slightly uh, in the ways that Jonah just described and ways I described in my newsletter uh, yesterday about um, there are fewer speech codes or lots of legal victories. People are objectively more free than they were 20 years ago. The problem has eased slightly, but the awareness of the problem has so thoroughly permeated the conservative population 
that the awareness and the sense of urgency about it is higher in many ways than it's been in the past. And so you're actually looking at a problem that still exists, but is maybe even slightly better than it was 20 years ago, better off than it was 20 years ago. But the awareness is so much more pervasive on the right. And, and I think the, one of the reasons for that is social media is Twitter uh, allows through the phenomenon that we, uh, we've talked about before and I've talked about on Jonah's podcast of nut picking, where you can sort of take the, one, the, the worst of your opponent's team, so to speak, and make it emblematic of the whole, um, has created an environment in which I think an awful lot of conservatives, they don't actually read the mainstream media anymore. They read what conservative critics say about the mainstream media through this process of nut picking. And that's not to say that the mainstream media has got it all squared away. It does not. But most conservatives I talk to out in the world, it's not like they're reading the New York Times. It's not like they're reading the Washington Post. They're reading what people are saying, conservatives are saying about the New York Times. They're reading what conservatives are saying about the Washington Post. And that's a very different thing that gives you a different picture. And again, that's not to say they're in good shape. New York Times and Washington Post are in good shape, but it's to say that it's a different picture. And I think that's the interesting problem that's been created for a lot of journalists who are equally frustrated by a Sam Donaldson, um, you know, a Jim Acosta potentially, that uh, they get to be cherry picked out and used as this they are the mainstream media when in fact there's tons of reporters who are working every day to just try to tell the stories the best they can and to your point like that's um this is very broad brush painting going on okay i want to do lightning round and uh, here it is Uh, we've talked about media issues on left versus right but within the left who's been getting the short shrift last night NBC put out general election matchups of each Democrat versus Trump, and they left Warren out of the poll. (laughs) Warren had beaten uh, Biden um, in Biden and Klobuchar in Iowa. She beat Biden in New Hampshire, and they just didn't include her. Uh, I think the Sanders team would say that they haven't gotten credit for the wins they've had. They're running ahead in every state, and no one seems to be treating them like the definitive front runner. Biden is still running ahead in these head-to-head matchups, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So lightning round, uh, Jonah, we'll start with you. Who has the most to complain about their coverage on the Democratic side? Hmm. I don't think Warren. I mean, this is an egregious, the thing you mentioned is an egregious example, but I think one of the reasons why she ran the pretty disastrous campaign that she did was that she believed her press clippings way too much. And she didn't get the kind of scrutiny that actually would have helped her earlier on calibrate her messaging. Um, I think you can make a case for Sanders a little bit, um, certainly from 2016. Um, Everyone's pretty rough on Bloomberg right now, (laughs) I got to say. And I know this is a lightning round, but I didn't get to talk about Bloomberg. All I want to say from the previous discussion is, while I think it's unlikely, Conventional wisdom is that Bloomberg is going to do very badly tonight. My prediction is that if he does very well, he will be the Democratic nominee. Whoa. Wow. That okay. is a lightning round bomb. Okay, Steve, who's getting short shrift? I mean, I think Bloom- Bloomberg is getting a lot of attention, but mostly 
because of Oppo that other people have. I mean, he's new on the scene. I also think he's getting a lot of attention and crowding out. I mean, what's amazing to me is the the lack of a bounce that we saw for Klobuchar and Buttigieg. I mean, there's a there's a national poll that saw Buttigieg losing eight eight points, despite the fact that he's overperformed. I think expectations in both. That's Iowa true. Buttigieg and, and might have gotten the worst. Jim. I mean, it's it's he's he's just been sort of drowned out by the the omnipresence of Bloomberg. And I think Bloomberg look. A lot of the people making decisions at the major networks and the and major uh, publications, New York Times and elsewhere, know Bloomberg personally from his time in New York. And that matters. They pay a lot of attention to him. For I better think they, or worse they pay, for him. Yeah, for better or worse for him. I mean, I think you could probably make the argument that Sanders has not gotten the respect that he deserves given his performance in 2016 and given the level of support that he has – but the person who benefits from that the most by far is Sanders, because mm-hmm. it, his record should be more heavily scrutinized than it's been. The stuff that we're seeing about him with his apologia for the Soviet Union and, you know, Latin American dictators, that's all coming almost exclusively from oppo, a lot of it from the right, some of it from now from his from fellow Democrats. But he has skated. I mean, where has been the coverage of the radicals that Bernie Sanders has as surrogates? I mean, he has people who have made grossly anti-Semitic comments again and again (laughs) and again. Where is that coverage? That should be a front page above the fold story in The New York Times. If it's happened, I've missed it. What about Michael Moore? Michael Moore's doing opening routines for Bernie Sanders in Iowa. Does anyone remember the stuff that Michael Moore said in Fahrenheit 9-11? I mean, half of it was just bullshit. Like, it's just half made up and exaggerated. I and worked so hard. for that explicit rating. Yeah, Incoherent I I mess. The whole, but so he's gotten no <laughs> scrutiny for that. And I do think a lot of that, to, to, to relate this directly back to, to our, our earlier discussion a lot of that is because if you are a journalist and you live on the center left bernie sanders is a little bit left but he doesn't seem that crazy to you whereas somebody like ted cruz on the right or even to some extent marco rubio if you look back at the coverage yeah yeah they they look at them and say wow that's i don't know anybody who believes that stuff steve didn't even mention that bernie sanders in 1917 went to russia (laughs) with john reed and shot kulaks (laughs) Um, all right y'all are the worst at lightning rounds ever david all the way from atchison kansas all the way finish us out all the way from atchison kansas uh for who had a reason to complain for about the first six to seven months of all of this race and buildup? It was everyone not named Elizabeth Warren. Um, she was she was far and away the media darling. And who has most reason to complain right now? I'm going to say probably Amy Klobuchar. I would say Mayor Pete, but Mayor Pete had an awful lot of media love for a really long time. But Amy Klobuchar was quite a story coming out of New Hampshire, and it's just been swallowed by the story of the, the greater story of Mike Bloomberg. But uh, I, I would say that the real story of most of the coverage is exactly what Jonah said: was this infatuation with Elizabeth Warren that led her to drink her own Kool Aid, and led to a lot of the uh, the stumbles that have wounded her campaign right now. You're all uh, wrong. It is absolutely far and away Bernie Sanders, who, if I were working on that campaign, I would have sent a full blast letter to every editor-in-chief of every major newspaper and president of every network, uh, laying out 
the case for why we are now the definitive front runner, and we expect the coverage of that, the time at the debates to reflect that, and the fact that it isn't is uh, a bias to the the centrist to this mean and the biases that they have, and that if we don't see changes, um, we will be making that the center point of our campaign. We'll have a government takeover of the media <laughs> once I'm elected. <laughs> <Is that laughs> the when we seize the radio station, might happen anyway. you up against the <laughs> exactly. wall. <laughs> Thanks, as always, for listening. Please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're getting your podcast from. Not only does it help us get better, but it helps others find the podcast. Thanks, and have a great week.